1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 15. If you're able to today, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? When we come to verses 13 through 15, would you read that out loud with me? This is what God's word says to us today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34. For whoever desires love, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is God's word to us today. You can be seated. Alrighty, we're just going to jump right in because there's a lot to get through in a short time to get there. Thank you, Smokey and the Bandit. I think if you were taking notes, you're, you're going to see three different things that, that we need to pay attention to today. Peter has been overwhelmingly talking about resistance in really dark days. What, what do we define resistance as again? Quiet, gentle, humble holiness. That's what he's about in this day and age. Not just in the first century, but even in really dark times like today, friends. The sun might be shining, but it still feels like sin reigns in a lot of different places, doesn't it? So how do we bear up with Christ-like composure? How do we end up not being shaken to the very core? There are three different things to point out. If you're taking notes, the first one is maintaining Christ-like character. Maintaining Christ-like character. Secondly, contributing good and not evil. And then finally, we deal in certainty. That's a big scary word in a world that's very uncertain. How can we deal in certainty? I, I want to go through these first two rather quick, though. The character piece, he's been talking about this at length, hasn't he? You feel this over and again, especially with the main thrust of the book being about holiness, being solely set apart for Jesus. He is restating everything that he's already talked about in the past couple of chapters. He's summing it up. 
but he's more concerned about a corporate lived out faith than just our own individualized, privatized faith. What's he say in in verse eight? Finally, all of you, every single one of you, top to bottom, kiddos to older folks, pastors to parishioners and members. What's he say? He lists five different things in a world of ugly behavior. I want you to have this attractive, holy behavior instead. He's saying that we're in it together. Even though he lists five different things, they can really be grouped into three different things too, can't they? Read them with me. Have this amongst you, unity of mind. But then he says, have a humble mind. Be sympathetic to one another, but also be tenderhearted. And the buttress of it all, the foundation of it is brotherly love. Every faculty, every part of our lives, not just individually, but corporately together as a church should be summed up in such a way like Jesus would sum up the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every area of our character is transformed by the cross of Jesus. It includes our mind. It includes our relationships. And even the very scary word, even our emotions, Our mind, he says, is to be both harmonious and unified. Notice he doesn't say that it's to be homogenous. It doesn't mean that we think alike. It doesn't mean that we dress alike. It doesn't mean that we listen to the same kind of music. It doesn't mean that we sound the same. It doesn't mean that we parent the same. It does mean, however, that we are gripped by the only thing that matters. And it's Christ's cross and resurrection. A couple of our staff and their families, we got to hang out with Dr. James Merritt a couple of nights ago. And that guy is a hero of mine. I love this dude. He was a president for the, for the Southern Baptist Convention for a few years. He was also on the task force for, um, for helping deal with sexual assault in the SBC. Some of the resolutions that we have now in caring for victims are because of his leadership. The dude is a beast. I love him. I'm grateful for him. He preached through 1 Corinthians 15 to a room filled with associational leaders, people that are leading at different churches that have different ideas about how to do church. To sum up the big thing that he said, though, to a room full of people with a lot of different opinions was that if Jesus' cross, if it actually didn't happen, if his resurrection is a fairy tale, nothing that we do matters. But if it did happen, it's the only thing that matters. That is the only reason for us to gather together as a church to sing and participate in one another's life because of Christ and what he's done. 
death-crushing, forgiveness-supplying, sin-forgiving work of Jesus. That's what our minds are to be rooted and anchored in. And then he says our emotions. What's he say? He says that we're to be both sympathetic and tender-hearted. Sympathetic and tender-hearted. We're to be understanding of the situation that folks are in and compassionate at the same time. Notice he doesn't say empathetic though. Sympathetic has this idea, carries with this idea that we understand the, the, the state of life that people are in, right? There's only one individual, however, who has ever walked the face of this earth, who is able to empathize with us in every, every every moment of life. And it's Jesus. Sympathy is to have pity for and to lend support to. Friends, that's the expectation and command. Empathy, though. There's a danger here for folks that want to put themselves in someone else's shoes way too much because it's hard enough to deal with the stuff that we walk through. I don't have it all together to be able to carry someone else's emotional burden and baggage. And brother and sister, you don't either. But when we're sympathetic and compassionate, when we can see that someone else has a need, we can point them to the one that's able to meet their need and shoulder the load. And all of this boils down to relationships. Paul's actually saying that we should actually like being around one another. Can you imagine a church where 100% of the people enjoyed being around 100% of the people? Are there people in here today that if you sat next to, you had to sit next to, you might not come back next week? Hmm. There might be a signed seating next week. Who knows? We'll just do a little of a, you know, a little experiment, right? What's he say though? He says we should like being around one another, serving one another, loving one another. It's the word brotherly love. It's, you know, Philadelphia. You should enjoy one another. It's not the picture of divine love that you see in 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. That kind of love can be extended toward even enemies. But Jesus is saying about the people that gather together on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, there should be preferential love towards them. Do you have preferential love towards people at Hazelwood Baptist Church? Do you love people in such a way are your emotions in check in such a way that you're sympathetic, you're able to recognize the state, the emotional state of other people here and able to point them compassionately to where they can have their needs met? Do you have singleness of mind, which is the mission of God here in Hazelwood? Or are there other things in your life that you would rather make first and paramount here there's no room for that here. 
He says that we are to be of one mind, similarly emotion for the brothers and sisters here. For the sake of time, go down to verse 11, 9, and, 9 through 11. Here he says, when bad stuff comes our way, if you're talking about wanting to bear up against awful times, dark times, we don't inflict harm when other people want to harm us. We don't do what the world does because we're different. We're people of resistance. Frederick Nietzsche, he hated Christianity. Not just because of his atheism, but because of what he thought that it stood for. He thought it was a religion that praised charity and piety or holiness, which that in and of itself isn't bad, but he thought that it championed submission and smallness, continued to be weak, had nothing of the life-affirming boldness that great men and leaders had throughout the centuries. God wasn't interested in caring for his people and leading them to greater pastures. God was interested in enslaving his people. That's what he would argue. But he misses the boat because he doesn't read the rest of the text, does he? He's misunderstanding what the Bible is all about and how people of God are meant to live and work and act in their own day. We do good wherever and whenever. And we recognize that the world is broken and evil. We don't have rose-colored glasses. This is why we can bless instead of curse. And this is why we choose not to speak evil of our opponents or against those that do evil or against people that we just don't like. It isn't because they're the ones that are in charge, but it's because he's in charge. When he quotes Psalm 34, look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous God's ears are always open to their prayers. So when you read Psalm 11, God is always on his throne. He's never out of it. And his eyes are always searching. God is always on. He's never off. He's always in. He's never out. And so we can enjoy good days now, not because of circumstance, but because of him who reigns. And so then he gives the expectation in light of God reigning and ruling today, let there be no evil speech in your mouth about people that you don't like. That includes things like gossip and slander and boasting and bragging and lying and making false promises and not intending to keep them. And instead we speak the truth and love to people. Instead, we use our lips and our mouth to praise God and to bless people, to actually do good in this world, which isn't just giving the gospel away, although that's part of it. 
Certainly give the gospel away, the greatest good that we can ever do, but it's also being on the lookout for how we can, like Israel, during the, the removal from the promised land, seeking the betterment of the city. Does this sound familiar? In other words, how we do politics and the political discourse that we have should sound more like Jesus and less like Fox News and less like Ben Shapiro. The way that we do marital advice and seeking how can I be a better husband or a better wife in this world, it doesn't come from people that don't know much about the Bible don't know how to follow Jesus, but it comes from advice from brothers and sisters that have you and your spouse's best interests at heart. That's a summation now of the first few passages. Now look at the rest of it with me. I want to read 13 through 15 again. Listen carefully. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Peter cares a lot about character. Not just amongst one another, but he cares a lot about how we care, carry ourselves and the normal day-to-day stuff that happens. The fuel for the fire, though, comes from a deep abiding hope. It deals in certainty. He would say, do not fear. Verse 13, he starts with the off-putting question. Who is going to do harm to you if you are eager to do good? The Bible recognizes if you're generally a kind, likable dude, you're not going to have a lot of conflict in your life. Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Romans 13, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right and he will commend you. The reason why this passage can be very off-putting for some of us though, is because we know that even when we do the right thing, bad stuff still comes our way. You ever been put in a situation like that before? I had the choice of either cheating on a test or not cheating on a test and turning it in. Let me tell you, um, not passing a particular class that cost you thousands of dollars doesn't feel very good some days. Doing the right thing hurts sometimes. And even more than that, Other people might not like the right thing that you do. 
because it might affect them. Kindness and generosity, folks, it can be weaponized now. I'm not a lawyer. Do not take legal advice from me. But did you know that there's a little thing called the Good Samaritan Law? Are you familiar with this? Do you know why it would be put in place? It's so that when you do good things for people that are in a really bad way, they can't come around and sue you. Why on earth would we need anything like that? Say it negatively, perhaps suing is the American way to cry and throw a tantrum. But more pointly, sometimes when we hurt people, it might help people, it might actually hurt them. And they can't understand why we would try to intervene. But it's for you in good faith to help someone in a dangerous situation so you can give emergency care to someone that desperately needs it. But he says, you will be blessed, not if you act like a jerk, but rather if you suffer for righteousness sake, for the good, with godly character. Because he's made you his possession. He's made you his treasure. He's made you his friend. And so in this life, because his eyes are on us, there is never, ever, ever, ever a reason to fear. The command not to be afraid in Peter alone shows up four times. It shows up dozens of times throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament. But when we talk about fear, what are we talking about? How would we define it? What's a helpful way to think of it? Fear is the concern that something that we care about and love is going to be taken away from us. It has survival and protection, maybe even comfort in mind. The fear is the concern that something that we care about and love will be taken from us. And we're not quite sure how it's going to alter our life. When Peter's telling people not to be afraid, what on earth would they have to be fearful of losing? family and their house and their income and their lives. The most fundamental things on the planet, right? And Peter is minimizing their loss. He says, what is it comparatively speaking to what Jesus offers you? He says that their treasure their comfort and their rest and their security isn't here and it's not wrapped up in the things that can be taken away from you. And while they march through Babylon, Jesus' presence is with them. Their ultimate treasure and security and hope is him and life with him. So then when we think about fear, we ask the question, do we want to follow Jesus where he is going to lead us? 
where he wants to lead us? Are we going to go when he says go? Or are we afraid of things that we care about being taken away from us? Why are we fearful? We're fearful because we love this thing so much, or we love these people so much, we love this place so much, or we love our job so much, or we love our life so much. The ongoing lie that fear whispers in our ear, it's trying to convince you that whatever you're losing is most valuable in your life. And you have to do whatever you can to stop that from happening. And sometimes we will do whatever we can to stop that from happening. Ed Welch wrote a little book called When, when People Are Big, God is Small. And when people are big and God is small, fear keeps us quiet. It shuts our mouths when we should be speaking up in unhealthy and unjust situations. Fear holds us back from following Jesus where he would lead us to go. Fear moves us away from where God has us. Fear hides things in the dark so that he cannot see the light of day. Fear compromises while love hopes and confronts people. But if that's true, is the other side true? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a couple of months before his execution for being a Christian and standing against the regime, the Nazi regime, he said this, those who are afraid of men have no fear of God and those who are fearful of God have no more reason to fear man. And so when God is big, people are small, friends. When God is big, people are small. When we take God at his word, we're enlivened to obedience and unity and holiness and we're joyful and happy to go where he leads. And so he tells us, do not be troubled. Instead, honor Jesus and put him in his proper place. He tells us to do this with gentleness and respect. We fear God and not man. We fear God and not losing even the most precious things to us. Friends, fear isn't just a moral issue though. Fear is an evangelism issue too. We're communicating something to a lost and hopeless world when we choose to shriek back in fear, aren't we? Kathleen Callahan, she said this, the task of the local church, us, is both confessional and apologetic. Meaning it's both in what we believe and how we communicate it to other people. The confessional task, believing, believing in this world today is not enough for Christian communities if they're going to participate and thrive in a pluralistic context like the one that you and I live in today. 
How many people here walk around afraid? And what are you afraid of? Do you know how fearful your, your neighbors are? I wish you could have been there earlier this week. Uh, the staff and I, we, we went through a, a little bit of an exercise where we were looking at how to narrow the, the, the vision and mission of our church. Mission equals opportunity and um, supply, um, how, how God is going to supply the mission, and then what breaks our heart or our burdens. And one of the overwhelming things that continued to come up in that discussion about burden was how fearful and hopeless the people are around us. And what are they afraid of? Certainly poverty, absolutely, that's a big deal. You're a single parent and you're fighting to care for your kids, putting food on the table is a pretty scary thing. People are afraid of crime. They're afraid of a lot of things that pale in comparison to the biggest thing. And that's eternity without hope, without God in the world. But friends, when we are afraid of the very same things that people that are without hope in the world, what are we communicating to them about our God? Again, I'd ask how many of us are afraid here today? pastoral counseling, I have the opportunity of sitting with some of you and hearing your heart and how you've wrestled with loss and struggle. And I hear the fear. When I came here in view of a call, oh boy, you can send emails to Tim at hazelwoodbaptist.com if you want to follow up with me about this. Several things stick out in my head about when I came here in view of a call and we voted. But one of the questions that continued to come up was whether or not we were going to continue doing the, a particular ministry or this or that or the other. And how that communicated to me was fear. I heard concern and want and like, like we want to do the things that we care about. But that landed on me as fear, friends. How many of us leave when the going gets tough? Or how many of us make family decisions to leave an area because we're afraid? How many of us stop short in gospel conversations with people because it gets too uncomfortable and we're afraid of what's going to happen next? How many of us demonstrate that we are gripped by our present circumstances rather than the gospel of Jesus? 
I'm going over today, friends. I'm so not sorry about this. Let me lean in, please. Church, there might be a day that you and I are called to suffer. And Jesus might lead us to really hard times to come. But when we're afraid of what we might rightly say are smaller things, do we think that we can be faithful when the hardest times come? It doesn't work like that. But today we could be strong and fearless in small stuff now and by God's grace we can be faithful until the very end. Do you believe that? And so he calls us to be hopeful and unafraid. The reason why we're fearful is because we believe that God is going to flake on his promises to us and he's going to walk out. Or that he's not strong enough to keep his promises. It's the reason why we're so hard on ourselves is because we don't believe that Jesus' grace covers a multitude of sin and you think that you have to be harder on you than Jesus is actually harder on you. The reason why we're so ashamed is because we really can't believe Jesus would want to spend time with us, let alone eternity with us. And so how can you grow in hope? If you want to be strong and faithful today, lion-hearted, not boastful and proud, but humble, leaning upon Jesus' goodness and grace, how do you do that today? You do that by being hopeful. And it's by growing in fluency in the gospel. And that doesn't just mean preaching the gospel to yourself, that Jesus Christ died and rose again, giving you victory over sin and offering you a brand new life in eternity forever. That's true. But you apply it to every area of your life. And then you begin giving it away to one another. Showing other brothers and sisters how Jesus' gospel interacts with every single area of your life. And then out of this comes an announcement to everyone else. The lost and sinfully sick and fearful. Friends, the first best response to fear is hope. And maybe hope needs to look like repentance for you too. We're going to move into a time of prayer just for a moment in response. I'm going to ask you to read over the passage again, leaning in specifically to 13 to 15. Asking the Lord, search my heart, know my ways. Show me where I have been afraid to follow you.
Show me what I've been afraid of losing compared to you. And show me why you are the greatest treasure that I have. I have you and only you. And if I have only you, I can be satisfied in you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.